Uh, having a, because along the way, I've also had to fire property managers. Um, so I had a really bad property manager for one deal. And I kept them because they were quite affordable. And the other options looked more expensive. On paper, they were more expensive, right? But once I finally fired one, the, the immediate improvement in, in rents collected and turnover time and cost to turn units, all of it shot up dramatically. Um, and so the biggest lesson I've learned is just fighting sunk cost fallacy and understanding the cost of, of poor work, um, which is incredibly high. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Austin Curry, and today we're learning lessons that Austin has learned as he scales his real estate portfolio as a busy professional. We're digging into some of the early deals that he did on the South side of Chicago, lessons that he learned as just jumping into the real estate world on those first couple of deals, and then scaling up to doing deals during the real estate pandemic. Things that have happened along the way as he's scaled his portfolio and continued to grow the deals that they're doing. A lot of great lessons in this one, especially for you know, side hustling and busy professionals who are looking to build their real estate portfolios as they continue in the corporate world and you know maybe plan their escape. Maybe you relate to that. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And you know what? People see your reviews and they think, hey, maybe I should listen to the show. I can learn something too. And you know what? I see your reviews and I appreciate that so much because then I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Austin Curry from Harriet Capital. Without any further ado, here we go. Austin, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Been a great chat here. I feel like you and I could probably talk for hours upon hours and, and probably not find much that we uh, disagree about. For our listeners out there who don't know about yourself and your background, can you tell us about what you do, your business, and uh, how you invest in real estate? Sure. Uh, so my name is Austin Curry. I'm based in LA. I'm a mechanical engineer by training, and I invest and syndicate multifamily and mixed-use commercial and residential real estate. Uh, so I have a small team. I look at a lot of deals in the Southeast, um, largely Atlanta, North Carolina, um, as well as some stuff here in LA. And we're just getting started. I'm about five, six years into my journey. Um, started in Chicago, done a lot of learning. And I just look for opportunities to connect with folks like Taylor on podcasts like these to build the brand and build deal flow and, and grow the network. Awesome. Can you tell us a bit about you know your portfolio and the types of deals that you've done? I'm sure we're going to dig more uh, into that in our conversation. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I started with a duplex uh, in Chicago. And then from there, um, and I'm sure you'll have more follow-up questions about deal specifics, but um, just running quickly through my my track record, um, did a duplex in Chicago. I did a quad with a partner. Um, that was my first partner deal, managed both of those myself. Um, and then in 2020, we syndicated our first deal um, in Atlanta. So we did an eight-unit property in Atlanta um, in the Vine City neighborhood. Um, we have some funny stories about all those properties. Um, and now we're under contract on a short-term rental opportunity, also in Atlanta, in the same neighborhood, walking distance from the Falcon Stadium. Um, and then lastly, one of my business partners manages a small construction company here in LA. So we are opportunistically looking to take advantage of um, California had some new laws passed to allow you to build up the four units on any single family lot, which of course, lots of rich people are very upset about. That's another topic. Um, so we're looking to build um, like some supportive housing, co-living uh, type or styles of projects on some single family lots. So that's uh, what's in the pipeline for us here, here at home. Awesome. Great. And first I want to dig into, you know, Ashley, it's kind of a broad question, but how do you make the time? How do you, how do you make it work? I mean, you're uh, at least at, at this stage when we talk, uh, a busy professional, you've worked at startups uh, throughout your career. How are you, uh, you know, finding the time to, to do, you know, all of these deals and continue to scale your business, build these partnerships, shoot, be on a, a podcast with me right now. How do, you, how do you make it work? Well, honestly, I think I'm still systematizing that, if you will. So it's looked differently at every stage of my process. Uh, so when I started, when I was managing like the smaller multifamilies in Chicago, um, it was just old school because I was going into an assembly plant and working a full eight to 10 hour day. And it was just grit and grind, right? It was up on the phone early, going by the properties early, going by the properties after work, um, nothing fancy or, or call it well thought out about it. And then after struggling through that, I ended up hiring um, an associate to help, uh, which was an interesting hack because I couldn't, we couldn't afford a property manager for just a two unit building. So I hired someone who had never done it before and kind of spun it as a, mentoring uh, exercise, which hard to say if that was worth it or not, but, you know, um, but so now that was, that was the start. Um, the middle got a little bit better. I started working with partners, obviously for eight unit property, we have property managers. And then the one we're, we're going to bring online, I'm working with a partner who has several Airbnbs in his portfolio currently. But to the answer your question, now I work from home most days, which is hugely helpful. And I'm just incredibly uh, disciplined or dictatorial with my time. So everything is, is scheduled on a calendar. My calendars tell me I probably wouldn't know when to eat if I didn't look at my phone because <laughs> it tells me when to do so. Um, everything is on a calendar and a task list. So my favorite items are an event and a task item and with those two things, I feel like I can I can conquer the world. So nothing incredibly sexy, but that's what I that's what I got for you. 
hey, it's a system and, you know, a system that works and can be improved upon is, is, you know, exactly, I think what we, what we all need to, to, you know, uh, conquer the world to, uh, to use your phrase. And that thing you mentioned about not being able to really afford a property manager on that first deal. I think a lot of people run into that, especially early on. And I would imagine there's been, you've had some mindset shift about, the importance of you know property managers and having margin and the the concept of quote unquote affording or being able to afford a property manager where i would imagine you felt you couldn't afford it before but maybe now you probably feel you can't afford to not have a property manager if if you all pardon the double negative Can you tell us about any of those mindset shifts that you've had as you've you know learned by doing yeah yeah i, I think that's a big one. So it's the cost of a bad system or the cost of bad help um, is, is what I learned. Um, that was kind of my tuition, if you will, is like uh, having a... Because along the way, I've also had to fire property managers. Um, so I had a really bad property manager for one deal. And I kept them because they were quite affordable. And the other options looked more expensive. On paper, they were more expensive, right? But once I finally fired one, the, the Im- immediate improvement in, in rents collected and turnover time and cost to turn units, all of it shot up dramatically. Um, and so the biggest lesson I've learned is just fighting sunk cost fi- fallacy and understanding the cost of, of poor work, um, which is incredibly high. Um, and so I guess to your question, with a two unit, you know, it is always going to be hard. You're going to really crush your profits with a property manager, but maybe the strategy is either scale quickly or short term rent one of the units because that bumps your income so high. The thing was at the time, I didn't know how to underwrite deals when I bought my first property. So I really didn't even know how to look at the levers that I could turn. Like now, I've spent so many years really approaching perfection with underwriting at least these basic deals like now when i look at a problem like that i have a huge spreadsheet and i'm just turning like 10 different dials to figure out how to make the deal work in a manner that works for me so the deals in chicago and atlanta what works for me is going to be to have someone managing so i have to figure it out using those tools absolutely that's that engineering mindset right look at the numbers and and how can the numbers work and how, how can the business plan work now if we can, I, I'm curious about your your evolution on underwriting and, and learning about underwriting from that first deal to you know the deals that you're doing now. Obviously, you you have a system now. You're you know really approaching it as a business owner, you know, rather than I don't know somebody who's just trying to do a deal, right? So, can you tell us about that the evolution of your mindset and you know on that topic of underwriting and how it went from. I, I guess I'm curious how you even approached looking at that first deal and then how that's evolved to how you look at deals today? Yeah. You know, I think um, there's so many resources on the internet, but a lot of the more social ones, like the Instagram personalities and whatnot, they make it all look so easy. Right. And so I'm very much uh, the opposite of risk averse, I would say. Um, I, so when I, when I saw, when I was reading, doing my reading on real estate investment and this, this and that, and um, back in 2015, I was like, of course, I mean, this looks like people way less smart 
than me had figured this out, right? So I pretty much jumped in. I did no analysis because I didn't know how to. I put, you know, three and a half percent down on a property that only cost 150000 So my exposure was pretty low. Um, and, and I pretty much got my lunch eaten on that deal, right? Like that didn't, that didn't go well. So I, I, that was my, that's what I call my tuition to, to get in the game. And after that, as I was exiting the Chicago properties, the second one really went quite well, the quad. And when I was exiting, I was also transitioning to syndicating. And I spent years just consuming everything I could consume. Like I was pretty deep in analysis paralysis, to be honest, but I had a lot to learn. So from 2016, or sorry, I bought the quad in 2017. From 2017 to 2020, I didn't buy new deals, right? I operated the two, the six units I had in my portfolio. And then it was just input, consumption, podcasts, books, papers, networking, right? And in 2020, I networked to the point where I had a team of people I was interested in working with. And one of the guys was a... Uh, works for a private equity firm, real estate private equity firm, right? So he was rather overqualified to work with someone like myself, but we hit it off. Our demographics were the same, same age, same interests, really excited about kind of the mission of, of what our firm is today. Um, and he was the first lens, like the first person I talked to who was looking at deals, underwriting them and sending me models to look at to digest as a part of digesting a deal, right? So looking at something other than a listing. Um, and from there, that was the point where I was like, this is the answer. This is what I am missing. This is what has not happened on my first two deals that cost me a lot of money on my first deal. And from that point, I was like, I have to learn how to do this. And I'm an engineer. So like I do calculus for my real job. I was like, I can figure out, a, I can figure out. A spreadsheet. There's, <laughs> sure. there's addition, subtraction, multiplication here. Like I can figure this out. So from there, it was a lot of times like spinning, spinning models with him, creating models, passing them to him, him passing them back, a couple online courses and just going as deep as I can on understanding the, the professional way to do it and seeing the difference when I approached a deal from that angle where suddenly I was the shark in the water versus the, the goldfish, if you will. Cause I feel like if you read an Instagram post and then you go do a deal, like you're jumping into a pool and you think you're a shark, but you're a goldfish, right? Cause you don't know anything. You've seen five lines. Someone told you you could put $10,000 down and FHA uh, house, and then you own a property and you rent one side and you make a ton of money. It's like, well, that might've worked well for you in 2014. But as we've talked about, like in today's price points, you're playing a, you're fighting over pretty like shrinking margins in effect, right? Mm -hmm. So as that occurs, you need to be more and more precise with your analysis beforehand. And I've just, I saw that reality. And I wanted to be that guy, that guy that felt really comfortable where I'm looking at a deal that may only net a 5% IRR, but I know everything that I need to control to deliver that 5%, which is pretty paltry, but at least I know what it takes and I know how to get there. So that was my motivation. Interesting. Okay. So you did those 
first couple of deals, learned some lessons, maybe took some lumps, if you will, took a few years to actually operate a few of those properties, learn the market, build your mindset, and then kind of build build your network, build your team. And then when 20, 2020 rolled around and unfortunately the pandemic also happened, you know, I want to break into how that the, the pandemic may have helped or hindered or impacted, you know, the growth of of your real estate business, how that, you know, dynamic all worked. Sure. Yeah. So it helped me personally because I was able to transition to working from home. I was forced to work from home. So that gave me a lot more control of my own time, whereas I can schedule meetings, I can talk to um, a real estate professional, I can look at a deal, I can do all these different things in my workday. Um, professionally, it made it a lot more challenging to, um, well, I guess not even a lot more because I'm new. I'm jumping in the game. So we went under contract for a property in December of 2019. We went under contract for a portfolio, three buildings in Atlanta, obviously. And so we were raising capital and it was going well. First time out, you know, we had a great model. We had a nice deck. We had great headshots. Um, we felt really good about it. We're like, we're going we're gonna to do it. And we, we did it. Like, we got all the verbal commits for the deal. Um, March 2020 happens, worst day in the history of the stock market, they ring the bell. So most people that were going to invest with us were planning on pulling their money out of the stock market, which had been doing great until that day. So then half of that money disappears. And so half of our verbal commitments disappear overnight. So we fall out of contract on the deal. We're scrambling. We're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. The world is ending, allegedly. And... Basically, we, you know, we circled the horses and were able to close on one of the buildings. So that's how we got the eight unit that we have today. Um, after that, you know, to be honest, I don't think the pandemic has had too much impact one way or the other. The city of Atlanta really didn't close down for very long. So we didn't really fight with a lot of tenants being out of work and things of that nature. Um, obviously, as you're well aware, deals have still been being done in huge numbers every single day in every market. So no one is kind of, you know, flipped their sign to close and, and went home. That's not happening either. Um, so beyond just being in that position when the stock market crashed, um, I wouldn't say that the pandemic has, has slowed down much else. That's good. That's good. And we did see, um, you know, interest rates massively fall. Now they were already trending downward just prior to the recession as well. Most people, you know, uh, forget that the the Fed was cutting rates before anybody thought pandemic could be a thing because the uh, the economy was you know not in the greatest position at that point. It cut rates even further, and that has just continued to you know fuel a lot of uh, a lot of real estate deals. But it sounds like you didn't struggle um, after that that deal was closed. You didn't struggle with anything along the lines of. The you know eviction moratorium. Presumably, you had a property manager in place that helped you navigate those things. There have also been a lot of you know supply shortages, things like that. Have any were any of those an issue where you have uh, success navigating those things? Not really. So I'm big. This is a controversial topic, but I'm a big fan of subsidized housing, renting to subsidized tenants. 
And I've had the best of the best and the worst of the worst. Remember, I started on Southside of Chicago and now I'm in Atlanta. And they have a huge, huge backlog of, of people that need housing with the Atlanta Housing Authority. So there's no shortage of tenants if you can keep your, your property in good shape, right? And pass inspection on a timely manner. Um, regarding the eviction moratorium, I suppose we had one tenant that fell quite behind, but once again, they were, they were a, a subsidized rent tenant. So they were only missing payments of 85 bucks a month. Um, and so the eviction moratorium in the South, you know, it's, uh, this is a thing, right? But when you're considering the markets, you need to look at housing laws and, you know, however you feel about red versus blue, red states are a lot more favorable to landowners. Um, that's just the thing. I've evicted somebody and it's, it's the ugliest thing to do to have to evict someone. I've evicted someone in Chicago and that was a nightmare and destroyed all profits for, for that deal. And I almost had to evict someone in Atlanta, but we did not. We were able to work it out. But it's just worth noting. So the, the moratorium didn't affect me too bad because we weren't hemorrhaging that bad based on what their payment amount was. And then they ended up finding other housing. So we were able to come to an amenable agreement. Um, but I mean, we were tracking it. We were tracking it every day. We we're tracking the state laws, the national laws, see what was happening. And, you know, most of that has, has kind of ended. So we're doing Although, okay. That, I mean, I, su- I would say that it probably is a controversial uh, opinion, I suppose, regarding subsidized housing. But the reality is that the government kept paying, you know, those bills throughout the the eviction moratorium and throughout the pandemic. So, you know, that that is a, a plus, right? Yeah. And, you know, my thing is when you're doing, uh, I hate class ABCD. I think that's a really ugly way to describe housing, but call it, you know, I've done a lot of class C, class B housing, workforce housing, affordable housing, whatever you want to call it. And the tenants that I face the problems that I have faced with subsidized rent tenants were the exact same problems I faced with market rate tenants. So it's hard to beat the fact that the government is cutting that check at midnight on the first of the month, come hell or high water. Um, so that's that's my two cents on it. We had also talked, I wanted to just uh, touch on this here during the recording. We were talking about how you looked into uh, basically flipping uh, near yourself uh, and in California years ago and came to the conclusion that it wasn't the right fit for you. And um, just want to touch on that and, you know, kind of the work that you did there and then how you came to the decision, Hey, flipping in California is a high risk, perhaps low reward type of uh, situation. There are better, uh, better strategies out there. So it's actually a pretty funny story. I kind of got scammed and into attending a real estate seminar, a paid for real estate seminar, right? Um, which, you know, when you're deep in your learning journey, you're very susceptible to these types of things. But, you don't, yeah, you don't <laughs> see the scams coming as well. It's just a fact. Yeah, yeah. So long story short, I paid for one of those home flipping courses, not intending to. And I showed up and basically I was in this big like Marriott ballroom somewhere in Oakland. And for several hours, they just extolled the virtues of flipping houses are like, it's any idiot can flip a house. It's dumb that you're not already doing it. The more debt you can take, the better. Take the hard money. It doesn't matter what the interest rate is, like all kind of crazy stuff. And then they try to upsell you into the $50,000 masterclass. 
if they happen to be a sponsor of your podcast, I <laughs> they are not, okay. but um, I'll just be clear. These are things you're saying. I'm not saying these things. I don't have any knowledge on this topic. I have nothing against. Um, I did learn a fair amount. It was very interesting. But so anyway, I went to this course. They taught me how to flip a house in theory. So afterwards, I was like, all right, I'm going to flip a house. So I go and I wanted to get involved in real estate in Oakland anyway. I'd never flipped houses. I flipped a house in Chicago once. And so I got under contract for a house in San Jose. It was $700,000. It had had a major fire and it had several homeless people squatting in it. But there was a promise of a Google campus was going to be open like right down the street. So they're like, this is a million dollar house. You just have to flip it and make 100K easy. I was like, okay. So I went on a contract, uh, 700K. I have contractors in and out of the house. Um, this is kind of my first intro to underwriting a deal, I guess, because one benefit from what I referred to as a scam is they did give me a nice little plug and play spreadsheet, which was the first time I had an Excel spreadsheet, which showed all the costs, carry costs, CapEx, all these different things. And it's calculating a number for you. It's calculating return. So for all that shit I talked, that was kind of my introduction to underwriting, right? Um, and so, but along the way, I'm getting all these quotes. I'm talking to hard money lenders. I'm understanding draw schedules and all these different things. And I'm realizing that the deal is very tight, right? Based on comp sales and after repair value and total CapEx or renovation costs. So I'm like, okay, I'm risking this much money, $700,000 to make, I don't know, let's say $30,000. And I'm like, $30,000, this is another calculation that you have to make when you are a, you have a day job, right? It's like, is the risk, is this life-changing money? So $30,000 is a whole lot of money, but when you have a day job, it's not life-changing money for most people. Um, and so I was like, what's the downside risk? If I mess up a $700,000 deal, it will take me a very, very long time to recover from that financially. Yes. Um, and so therefore I, I backed out of the deal, killed the contract and we doubled down on long distance. You know, my properties in Chicago were quite stabilized by this time. I was making a little bit of money every single month. And I was like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I started looking again at properties in Chicago. I networked and kind of built the team that I've been working with now. And we eventually pivoted and went toward Atlanta, but we've been running with this model ever since. Interesting. Well, you know, we don't talk about flipping on the show very much, but I'm I'm not really a proponent of flipping as, as a real estate quote unquote investing strategy for the vast majority of people. I don't even see it as real estate investing, frankly. The IRS also doesn't see it as real estate investing because the, it's taxed very highly. And uh, risking 700 grand to make 30 grand is uh, not a great uh, risk reward <laughs> calculation. I'm glad you, you figured that out before something potentially went wrong. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's, you know, we, everyone gets into real estate frequently for passive income, right? But then they'll go after the most active ways of doing so. Um, so everyone will pitch you on, have your money, make your own money, you know, retire early, all this good stuff. And then they'll be like, 
take my wholesaling class. <laughs> yeah. Like wholesaling is the opposite. It is the hard. Those people take a thousand phone calls a day. Like that is not, there's nothing passive about that. There's very little passive about flipping a house either. And like you said, the government agrees. So it's just interesting how they're, they're the lowest barrier to entry. So I understand why, but it's interesting how many of us are funneled that way at the outset. Absolutely, man. Wow. Well, I'm glad we dug into that right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Austin, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I think that second investment I made was the best one. Um, so the second deal I did was a quad and it was with a partner who's a, still a friend of mine. And the reason that was really powerful is because it did quite well for us, but it gave me the confidence to continue. As I mentioned, the first investment um, was, was kind of me getting kicked in the teeth in a way. I was paying my tuition, if you will. I was learning the game. I made a ton of mistakes and, uh, and I could have kind of tucked tail and ran after that one. But fortunately, I went ahead and pushed through and did the next one. And that went quite well. And I started understanding the benefits of working with partners. And that really changed my whole approach to, to the investing game. Awesome. And I appreciate you being uh, open and honest with us about these deals that didn't go the way that you wanted. Because the reality is, there are a lot of people out there with enormous real estate portfolios who come on podcasts exactly like this and don't talk about the deals that went wrong. And believe me, they all have deals that went wrong. They just want to sweep it under the rug and and not be you know forthright about it. So I appreciate you being honest with us about that. On that note, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Well, you know, financially that first one was probably the worst, but I think it was a valuable step in the journey. Mm-hmm. So I would say this is gonna sound a little bit funny, but it's true. Um, that fan mural, no, I'm just kidding. Not that class, but I invested once like a couple hundred bucks, um, in, in like an options course, um, which is peak, uh, like pandemic, um, side hustle. Like, I don't know. Anyway, I spent a couple hundred bucks. I learned about trading stock options for a while and that was a complete waste of time. But the upshot was what you said, shiny object syndrome, recognizing how bad it had gotten for me to where like I'm looking at learning asset classes that are not even that interesting and incredibly gimmicky and high risk. Um, And so since then, I've just made my wife my accountability partner and just really locked in like, yes, there's hundreds of asset classes, new ones come out every day. It's only going to get crazier with crypto, but you can only be an expert in a handful of things. You need to rely on other people in your network to be experts in other things. And um, 
And so that's what I would say was my worst investment. But mentally, it was helpful because it was a moment to look in the mirror and be like, what are you doing, Austin? It happens to the best of us. So there's nothing wrong with that. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, this is one I've been reflecting on a lot recently, but it's not the the lesson, I suppose, and I, I haven't framed this in an incredibly pithy way just yet, but it's the lesson is never to overweight the effects of macroeconomics versus the micro factors of your deal. So what that means is when I was learning underwriting and reading a lot of books about economics and things of that nature, um, you're just taught all of these terms about stuff we were talking about regarding inflation, rates, appreciation, housing supply, all these different things that affect our market and our asset classes. All those things are true, but at the end of the day, economics is not a hard science, right? As we know, it's, it's part science, part art, because it's psychology. And so all of these things are actually people looking at already what already occurred and attempting to understand why it occurred. And that's useful from like a frameworks and mental model perspective. But when you are actually in a deal, it's not all that useful to look back and try to understand how the market got to where it got to, you are far, you are more likely to either mess up your deal or improve your deal by nailing or missing the basic operational details of, of what you have going on. So I tell this to everyone who I talk to lots of people who want to get in. I'm like, don't, don't read every book on the economy. Yes, the values go up and down. And people with PhDs don't even understand why completely. The best thing you can do is nail the details, understand your cost drivers, which are generally speaking in multifamily, property taxes, unit turn, like start there. Just nail, nail your details and recognize that that will, be, that will serve you far better than going and getting a master's degree in economics and you know, waxing philosophical on why your rents only went up 2% instead of the 3.5% you projected in your model. Nice. I love that. Don't count on the market to save your deal. Have a good business plan and really execute, I think is, uh, is the way I would uh, maybe sum up what you're saying. I think if I understand what you're saying and Austin, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your uh, story and your lessons with us. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah, um, mostly email. So connect at harrietcapital.com is our business email. That's where we connect with investors, where we begin the conversations and, and where we send out deals. So I love to pe meet people that way. I'm on Instagram off and on. Um, and that is Austin, C-U-R-R-2. And I'm mostly just talking real estate and investment there as well. But email is really where the conversation starts for me. So helpful to see a bunch of your listeners over there um, bugging me and asking me lots of questions about all that stuff. Awesome. And our uh, social media expert, uh, Rem, on our team will be sure to tag you on Instagram. And I want to thank you for joining us once again today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, 
please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe no matter what podcast app you use. Catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.